So you're in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah, I'm a PhD student at UPenn right now. How is the coronavirus um, hysteria uh, where you are? Uh, it's ramping up. It's, it was like a pretty dramatic like increase throughout the week. Um, in the course of a week, we've had the, the spring break for undergrads get extended by a week. Um, mm. Now it's undergrads have to move out by this two people living on campus need to move off campus by this Tuesday. Oh my God. Um, so where, where are they going to go? Uh, I go home. They're going to go home. home. Wow. Yeah. All, all online classes, uh, grad classes and undergrad classes, I believe are all now online. Um, labs are trying to be more precautious as well. So labs are trying to like internally coordinate so that if there's, let's say 10 people in the lab, mm. they, you know, they make sure not everyone comes into lab on the same day. So it's maybe like, all right, you guys come in on Monday. We'll come in on Tuesday. Try to like group all your stuff that you need to do like in person in lab into one day so that you can work from home the rest of the time. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's ramping up all student club activities are like shut down. So right now, like the psychedelic society group that we have, isn't going to do anything else for the remainder of the semester or wow. probably like in, well into the summer as well. So we're taking like a little hiatus too. So yeah, everything's just kind of slowed down. It's very empty. So time to party, I guess, as, yeah. as college students. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, hopefully not in too big of a crowded space, but yeah, I'm sure a lot, of, a lot, a few of my uh, people that I know are taking advantage of the extra spring break time <laughs> to just go visit friends elsewhere. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, we'll see how things develop. It's it's all going so quickly that I don't, who knows like where we'll be like a week from now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm here in LA, and um, just the same thing. The grocery stores, there's people freaking out, and you know, the shelves are empty, and uh, people are afraid to really go anywhere do anything so we just been uh kind of hanging out at home but we're gonna get out later and and yeah. see the world but yeah can't can't stay inside all the time um, yeah no, i feel like that yeah <laughs> like i i understand the precaution but i feel like it's i at least for, i i know a lot of people including myself struggle with the idea of being inside it like kind of hits my mental health a little bit to just be in one space for like it's been like oh 12 hours and i'm like in my living room for 12 hours like, yeah i just don't I like don't feel happy. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm very curious to see how I'm very curious to see how it, it like the, the long term effects of this, because I feel like even if this only lasts for like a month, I feel like a month of like people going out to eat less, shopping less, buying less. It's going to have like some long term repercussions. So I'm very curious to see how that the economic uh, impacts you mean yeah. of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of businesses here I know are struggling. A lot of restaurants, um, people are just ordering food in. So there are a lot of places are offering free delivery um, because people don't want to go and sit in the restaurant with other people and use the utensils and the cups and everything. Yeah. So, um, but they're, they're ordering food in. So hopefully, you know, uh, they're, they're seeing an uptick in business there, but yeah, definitely businesses are definitely taking a hit for sure. Besides the grocery yeah. store, it's <laughs> probably a good time to buy stock in uh, Costco or something. Right. Yeah, no, I'm sure this must be like a huge like profit for them. But um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's really interesting. Just it highlights how um, this, this has, this event has really highlighted how individualistic our society is just base it's this it's it's this manifestation of like if i'm okay then that's all that i care about if i'm all right then that's that's mm. at the end of the day all that matters that's true and people buying like eight months worth a year worth of like toilet paper yeah. and i'm like you don't you not even like consider like that some other people will not have anything and this probably won't be going on for like a year you don't need this but is it the consideration of like the people in your community and your peers is just like 
absent, fully absent. So it's just really interesting to see that. Yeah, for sure. I, I've been watching, you know, just on social media, people fighting at the grocery or, you know, Walmart or whatever over toilet paper, like literally like struggling and, and pushing each other to get it. And, um, but yeah, that, that is a really good point that you mentioned. There's really that, that's the idea that people have when they pull into the, you know, we, even us, we went to the grocery store up the road and people were arguing over parking spaces and then you go in and it's just like every person for themselves and they're just hoarding as much as possible. But yeah. that, that doesn't really, yeah. I don't think enter people's minds like collectively, how is everybody doing? It's kind of just like, what do I need to survive? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, I think at, at the, at the, it's individualistic. By the heart of it, I think just people are very panicked. And to be fair, I don't think that our <laughs> our own institutions have done a lot to make people not feel that level of panic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure if we were in a, I'm sure we were like in a timeline where the the whole outbreak was handled a lot more calmly and a lot more efficiently by like gov- the government than people might feel a little bit more safe and secure, but I think people are kind of reverting a little bit into tribal kind of attitudes, um, primal attitudes, just because they feel that if they don't watch out for themselves, no one will watch out for them. That it's, yeah. it, it is like an every man for themselves situation. So you think um, it would be better if the government had a program or something to give out toilet paper and that kind of stuff. So people didn't have to freak out or what, what could they do more? I, I think just like, like, at least for me, you know, it's like, I don't have any, I don't have, I have very little faith like in a, in a, uh, 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 robust, like comprehensive response like from the government. Like mm. I think for example, last week we had, we tested like 2000 people for COVID and, and at that same time, South Korea tested like a hundred and like 30,000 people oh, okay. like in a day. And it's like, wow, like that kind of like contrast, it makes you just feel like, wow, like the government is not able to control this. Like no matter what they say, I'm like, Oh, it'll be okay. Yeah. Right. Like, it's not okay. Like you guys don't know what you're doing. You mm-hmm. guys, I don't trust you guys. So it's just that break in trust that even if we were to, the government were to reassure people and say, it's all going to be fine, that that's not the case. And we already did that with, I remember like Trump, like a few weeks ago said, Oh, it'll be down to zero cases in like a week. And it's exploded since then. And so anybody who maybe felt some reassurance from that, now has that like broken trust of like, you already told me once that it was going to be okay. And it's, it wasn't, I don't trust you anymore. So they feel like they're not getting solid information from the government and also that they could be more uh, proficient in, in, in making testing uh, more available and getting more people tested faster. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Um, Well, I had a, you know, this is such a, a, affecting everyone's life right now. Everything is shut down. So I had to ask you about that in the beginning, but we're here really today to talk about psychedelics, uh, which is, I know a a huge interest of yours and in your wheelhouse and you're um, an expert in in that field. Uh, You're the co-founder and executive director of the psychedelic science. uh, I'm I'm sorry, Penn Society for Psychedelic Science. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that your organization, how you got affiliated with it, how it started and what it does. Um, so it, yeah, it was interesting. It started off actually like it was four co-founders. Um, and we all kind of started it from like different areas and then all ended up meeting each other, realized that we all had this interest. And, um, instead of doing our, the own, our own ideas and our own like approach to this, we should just work together and started together. Um, it started in April, it started, um, early, uh, like January, uh, 2019. Um, we all met, introduced each other, uh, and we 
it was, it was for us like the first time that we had an opportunity to like talk about the science and the the cultural aspects of it and just the, the like uh, to talk about it like a psychonauts just to enjoy having a conversation about psychedelics with people who already knew about it and just having people ask us questions and provide further insights into things we already knew so it was a lot of energy between the four of us we decided that the best way to kick off the club would be a conference mm-hmm. so we ended up doing the intercollegiate psychedelic summit um in april like early april 2019 uh it was a conference with eight speakers 150 uh, attendees came from like around the pennsylvania new york massachusetts uh, area um so just kind of like northeast um area and that was like our official kickoff event um the club was really started as uh as a way for us to help bring that kind of focus like scientific focus on like psychedelics to Penn um because it was non-existent at the time uh so we wanted to bring that 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 attention to to Penn we wanted to help disseminate information about psychedelic science to the the broader Philadelphia community as well um so all our events are like open to the public um, and we just wanted to build a community around uh, interest with psychedelics uh, so that, you know, students beyond us could enjoy the kind of like camaraderie and and, and kinship and like um, the, the friendship that just comes from common in, uh, uh, shared common interests uh, that we were able to enjoy amongst the four of us, um, but like on a much larger scale for longer times. When did your interest in psychedelics begin? Was that something you'd always been interested in and, and reading about and learning about? Um, so my interest with psychedelics actually has, uh, I, I always love hearing like how people got into it. Um, my, my peers were definitely a lot more, in, uh, got into it through like kind of, um, reading the studies and being interested in the research first. I actually, which I always was like, wow, I respect that a lot. I actually came into it instead, um, through a, a huge love for the Beatles and the, the, kind of revolutionary politics of like the 1960s. And I always just thought, wow, like, what were these people? They were like, so like living in the middle of like the Vietnam War and the draft and like, you know, such a emotionally tumultuous time, such a politically tumultuous time. Like they were taking like these drugs and like this seems to have affected the positions that they were taking and the politics that they were supporting and the mm-hmm. views that they had, like, what could, like, how can a drug do that? You know, cause I don't think of, cigarettes or alcohol or any other compound in my in my mind like oh that has such a political effect in this time period so i was just very curious and i was very curious on how it affected the beatles music again like how i I couldn't think of any other drug that like has such profound effects on like people or generations so i was just morbidly curious of nothing else um and kind of uh after like some uh after some early experiences with that I then became more interested in the neuroscience of it and, and just profoundly like how how could this have such a how could how how could I feel this way? How could I take something that makes me feel like I just experienced something that was more real than what is real mm. is something that seems to have more truth than like what I see on a daily basis. Um, it didn't feel like it was just this like like a silly hallucination that was just like colors, which I expected it just to be colors and just to be a, whoa, this looks cool. But it was not just that something looked cool is that something had meaning to it. Mm. And that to me was just so interesting. How can this compound have generate like a sense of meaning in the experience? Um, And from there I got this into neuroscience. I went to grad school for material science initially, but I feel like ever since those experiences, I just like had this inkling to study the brain mm. uh, that was not being satisfied. And so I ended up leaving 
the material science PhD program and entering a bioengineering PhD program, getting to work in a lab that is has a very heavy neuroscience focus and being able to eventually, uh, thanks to all the uh, support and confidence that like the, my fellow co-founders had in the and uh, the work that we were doing, I, I felt motivated to include psychedelics into my research. Um, and my lab has been supportive. My professor has been supportive and it's gone really well since then. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important what you said. The first time I did uh, mushrooms, I felt like I had a very spiritual experience and I felt like some knowledge was um, sort of downloaded into my brain that I didn't have before and I, I saw the world a different way. And uh, it, it really, at first I was like depressed about it because I'm like there's more to this than what I'm really seeing. But then it, I, I think I got over that and I, I was really... Um, I felt like I had a, a li- sort of a, a life-changing experience, and um, I felt like I, I grew considerably as a person just in my awareness of of um, everyday life. It's it's more than what you see, like you were saying on a on a on a daily basis. It's more real, as you were saying. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think uh, I think for me, one of like the lessons that I took from um, my early experiences and you know, it's, it's interesting because you're always still kind of doing integration work on those experiences. So maybe you had an experience like 10 years ago and tomorrow you have some like breakthrough of like, Oh, I get why that happened. I see. I understand it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was at least just realizing like how silly, like it was like a feeling of life is silly. Things make me sad, but those things will pass. And it's so weird that they bring me so down because they will pass. Yeah. Things are so silly. Can't believe that. And I, it was just like laughing at like, sadness and laughing at like the pain and the bad things and just being like but there's so many good things this is also silly why am i even worried things this is so silly that i was so worried like things will be okay no matter what like i'll figure it out like i'm just trying my best um so it helped put things in perspective life in perspective when you some people could get really stressed out or including myself over things that in the scheme of life are are pretty minuscule yeah I feel like uh, a friend of mine puts it in, in a really good uh, in a, a really good term, which is that it's these uh, narratives that you may have, may have served you at one point. So the narrative is very, you know, the narratives that we carry with us are very ego egocentric in the sense that like um, things that are like bad things that happen to us have to be like the worst thing ever. They have to be a big deal because if they're not a big deal, it's like, oh, you won't change your behavior and do something differently in the future. And so you'll just keep doing like these bad things, but, and maybe that, that mentality and that thought pattern was helping you at one point, but then something happened where now it just started to become a little maladaptive and now it's not really helping you. And I feel that, yeah, with psychedelics, you kind of get to take a step back, see the bigger picture, realize that, you know, you get to see these narratives and then you get to kind of like a, a, uh, and in, in, in your ability to notice those narratives, you can kind of nudge them away in different directions. Um, and I think noticing is just kind of like ha- half of it, just like noticing um, that things are happening. So if you notice, if, if a psychedelic experience helps you notice that you are distancing yourself from people because you were just scared of not being able to connect to people and that, that that's all you've been doing is just like this preemptive sep- distancing now you can notice it. Maybe it won't be something automatic where now you're just like the most bubbly person ever and you're a social butterfly. Mm-hmm. But now when these things happen, you're like, wow, I just noticed that I just said no to going out because I was not believing in myself to be able to 
be a fun guy if mm. I went out. And and that noticing there's a lot of power, I think. So it's just helping you notice, helping you become aware of like the things your, your behavior. Interesting, interesting. So it has it could help you be self aware of of things that were maybe hidden or uh, locked away in your brain somewhere that it kind of opens those doors in a sense. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, there's actually a, a paper, yeah. There's uh, there's I feel like there's so many different frameworks for how to how to look at them. One of them is, yeah, definitely helping you become aware. I think it's like with the intention that you set. Mm. I think if you set an intention to, um, if you set an intention to be introspective, and you're like, I'm gonna just lay here, put on headphones, listen to music for five hours, and I've been journaling for the last week about you know, how I've been feeling, like what things make me happy, what things make me sad, what things I feel like I, I, I'm trying to do and not not accomplishing, then I feel like your mind is already there. And this just helps you like kind of peel back a little bit and dig a little deeper. If your intention is you're with your friends and you just want to like laugh and have and like be able to connect to your friend, I think that is what's going to most likely be facilitated. So it really is just like the intention because I've, I've definitely, for me, some of my like therapeutic experiences has have been just connecting with a friend and being able to talk and watch something and play around and, and hang out. And we were able to connect so deeply that at the end of the day, I felt like that's what I was missing. I just needed a really amazingly good hangout with a friend and to connect and to realize the value of friendship, the value of connection. And that to me was my therapeutic experience. So what that means for different people, it, it, it varies dramatically. You know, um, and if like if you have a trauma, it's maybe uh, it maybe takes a lot more pre-work and post-work from the trip to like handle that trauma and to like really like be able to integrate that experience in a healthy way that, that helps you uh, move on. Do you mean a, a trauma um, or, or like a bad trip or do you mean a trauma before you take and you when you say therapeutic experience, I, I assume you you mean taking a psychedelic substance? Yes. Um, so yeah, when I say trauma, I mean, so are you familiar with like the, the maps, um, studies that are going on with PTSD and MDMA? I, I've like read a very, very small amount about that. So I know that they're, they're experimenting with MDMA, uh, MDMA, but it's not approved yet. Right. And they're trying to look at it as an alternative for like opioids and, and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, basically, yeah, there's no really robust uh therapeutic um for mdma uh, for ptsd and um you know like disclaimer like i'm definitely not in uh in psychiatry but this is like my best recollection of the mm -hmm. research and everything going on um there's no robust treatment for ptsd um that is not just like uh behavioral therapy over extended periods of time and it's a very slow process and it's very difficult for people to kind of be able to bring up what is a very traumatic experience be it a near-death experience where you almost got shot or robbed or you mm -hmm. saw a friend die or like you were assaulted and it's very hard to be able to sit bring that memory up and not just have like your body overwhelmingly reject reliving that experience and like being able to like seal that experience away in like a healthy way and say oh my god this happened to me and i felt so scared but I'm okay now. Ooh, like it's very hard to do that um, sober. And what it seems that MDMA does, um, it's currently in, in phase three clinical trials. Um, I feel like it'll probably be clinically available for PTSD in 2021 to 2022. Wow. Because um, trials are going very, very well, like incredibly successful. Like 80% of patients have some like improvement. Would, would that um, would just be for veterans or anyone could get that medicinally possibly in a couple of years? 
Um, anyone should be anyone with like a, a clinical indication of PTSD, I believe, should be able to get it. It mm. might be treatment resistant PTSD, but I think it'll just be PTSD in general. Mm. I don't think right. it has to be treatment resistant. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just been massively helpful, and it just allows you. It allows you to go. Um, I, it, yeah, there's always a lot of therapy that precedes it, so you're able to set that intention of what you're like thinking about basically during the experience. But it's just, yeah, blindfolds on, music on, lay back, take it. And really, it's a very internal process. And you just go in, you bring up the experience, and you're able to uh, make, I, I feel like the best way to say it is just like make peace with it. It's like, yes, mm. this terrible thing happened to me, but I know that I am okay right now and I'm just trying my best. And if maybe there's like a transgressor, you get to forgive whoever was doing that transgression. If somebody shot your friend, you're like, you know what? I am sad. I am heartbroken. But at the end of the day, I'm, this person who shot my friend probably wasn't doing it because he's a happy person. Mm. He's probably hurt as well. And I, I feel sorry for the person who shot this person. I, I feel sorry for the, 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 the person in my mind. I, I turned into a villain. They did something bad, but I'm sorry for them. And you just project love towards yourself, towards the person, towards the world. And it's just, it, it helps you integrate that experience um, in a healthy way instead of having it be this thing that just clings onto you mm. and, is like a, a blockage in, in you emotionally um Can you- and uh it, it's amazing just because of how internal of a process it is the therapist is really there just um to ground you um and provide some support but it's very minimal communication and between you two during the actual experience can you talk a little bit about because in my mind and i'm sure in many listeners minds mdma is synonymous with ecstasy and I, I, I don't think that's the case. There's a difference between them, right? Um, yeah. And can you talk about what's because ecstasy? When I was, you know, like a younger person, the the what I was told was that ecstasy could burn a hole in your brain. I don't know right. how true that is, um, but that's why people that would use it, like abuse it, and were addicted to it. Um, showed signs of you know like even I, i've taken ecstasy before and i would do dumb shit when i would go home i would put, like be not had not have slept and put my try to put my shoes in the ref- refrigerator or something because my brain wasn't working properly so it, it what well, i guess what i'm trying to say is it would reduce your brain function to some way right um so how is that different than mdma and how what are the similarities what does it do does it really obviously releases serotonin um, but yeah. w- w- how does it, you know, can you talk about that and how it helps with PTSD? Yeah. So the, yeah. So ecstasy and MDMA, MDMA is the abbreviation for a actual, uh, uh, a specific compound. Um, I can't, I'm like, I can't remember the exactly what it's called. Like, yeah, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's a, 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 ke- a specific chemical compound. Um, ecstasy is a, a a street name for what could be mdma but crossed with a bunch of other things so um there's actually an interesting study that uh went to festivals um between 2010 and 2015 aspirin spends like okay what is this is this oh it's ecstasy okay this one's e this is mdma this is molly based on just how they described it tested the compounds and they were all equally likely to be like actually mdma adulterated or mis- misrepresented as like actually a different drug um, so when you're buying it, like as just an individual in the black market, you don't know what you're getting. Um, but 
in theory, ecstasy is just this, it, it's more, it, I feel like it's better understood as something that is mixed with, it's the MDMA mixed with other things. Okay. Um, MDMA should just be a very specific chemical, purely just that chemical. Um, and as to how it works, that is uh, on a neurobiological level, um, that is still up for debate. In general, how psychedelics work is still up for debate because they have anti-inflammatory properties. So some people think that that's part of it. Um, because for example, with PTSD or depression or anxiety have uh, a chronic kind of like pro-inflammatory state in their bodies and psychedelics are uh, anti-inflammatory. And so they're thinking, oh, maybe that's part of the effects. It's, it's reducing this inflammatory state. Um, part of it could be the fact that it's uh, a, a neuroplastogen. So it basically allows your, the, the best way to, to think about it is that it allows your brain to structurally, like physically rewire its uh, its connectivity so that it can learn new behavioral patterns. And so if you haven't been able to, in, to process a trauma in a healthy way that lets you move on from it and just be like, this is a part of my life and I'm going to move forward, then it allows you at, in, during this acute experience to start having that um, acceptance and processing the experience. And because your brain is physically in a state that it's kind of predisposed to rewiring and being able to like keep those new like connections, it allows you to um, have that, what is a brief realization during the experience to be something that sticks for a long period of time and that you are able to hold on to. Um, So that's definitely part of it. The subjective experience of like the subjective mystical experience and the personal meaning and all that, that you have in the experience is something that is correlated with having clinical improvements, but people are still debating, like, does having a subjective experience, like a mystical experience actually matter? Or is that just like a phenomenon of something happening in your brain and that's meaningless? Um, I, I don't believe it's meaningless. I think it's like a, a behavioral kind of biomarker for uh, for somebody going to, that somebody is going to receive like a benefit mm-hmm. from it. I don't think it's a, a meaningless um aspect of the effects of the drug but that's definitely something that's so debated um but yeah mdma is definitely a uh, it can have uh, negative effects though um if abused it depletes your ser- it spits out like a bunch of serotonin in your brain um basically just release the serotonin uh so if you take it too often without allowing the serotonin um uh your serotonin to be um uh, kind of like restocked up in your brain you're just mm-hmm. gonna deplete and then you could get uh, symptoms of like depression and other things like that, just because you're like serotonin signaling is just like messed up because you're out of serotonin or low on serotonin. So MDMA is obviously it's synthetic. It's created in a lab. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so in that, in, in a, in a pure form, it's okay. But in ecstasy and as long as it's not abused, but ecstasy is, is mixed with other nefarious components that could be harmful to you. Is, is there any legitimacy to that um, sort of p- little piece of advice that I got when I was younger that it burns a hole in your brain? Does it physically burn a hole in your brain? It does not. So like yeah. that, that was one. Yeah, that was the concern that people have with like psychedelic research. There's like a lot of um, I, uh, a, a lot of uh, I don't want to say propaganda, but just like miss uh, like part propaganda, part misunderstood, uh, misunderstood research. So for example, there is a study, I believe that that rumor is based off of where this person, uh, gave mice or rats, like, uh, these different compounds, look at their brains. And he did see like a lot of neurological damage in one of the rats. And he thought that was MDMA. turns out after this was published, um, 
that he mislabeled it. And I was actually, what he thought it was MDMA was actually a thing like meth. Um, mm. So, so no, there's no, with safe use, there, there's definitely no risk of like neurological like damage. Um, and the follow-up studies with participants and all these studies has really confirmed that there is no um, risk for neurological damage. Um, What's a safe amount? Because obviously the serotonin has to replete itself or, or restock. What is a good amount of time that you could take it for a therapeutic purpose for like PTSD? So if you did it maybe once a month or something, is that enough time for the serotonin to rebuild itself or? Um, I, you know, that is a question that I don't think we have like an actual robust answer to, mm-hmm. um, because it would, it would, we don't have like an answer to that we have, like, if somebody wants to look up like the, you know, in, in the interest of harm reduction, if somebody wants to look up like what the schedule and the dosage that people on these studies ha- uh, are taking so that they themselves know what is as like for sure, what is like a safe dosage and a safe, um, like how, like the spacing between the sessions that they use then I think that is, that, that's, that's probably like the best thing to do. Um, I don't remember like what the spacing between the, the psychedelic sessions um, is. Um, in terms of dealing with the PTSD, although some people definitely, there's reports of people um, just being able to by themselves work through things and get benefits. And I, and I definitely believe people can do that by themselves. Um, I think it is, it is nonetheless a, a risk. Um, I think it's important to remember that in all these studies where people are showing like 80% success or like whatever, it's 80% success given that they had a very, um, and uh, they had therapeutic session, therapy sessions before the experience that were helping them prepare for it. And that they had therapy sessions after the fact to help mm-hmm. them like understand and integrate what just happened into back into their daily lives. Um, and so that, that is a huge part of the experience. Like the trip is very important. But I think the pre-work and the post-work is what really takes what the experience was and manifests it into like a personal benefit in your life. Um, I yeah, so that's definitely something people should definitely keep in mind. Um, so it's I, not, I understand. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say I definitely understand that. Like in the, it, it's it's one of those things where like I, I I I definitely would advise people to be careful, and I don't want to like you know definitely make people think that it is like something where you can just take it and you're healed um because it is a lot of of work personal work um before the trip and after the trip to be able to uh integrate and it, it's 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 work but i am very sympathetic to the fact that you know we're like in a very broken healthcare system access to good mental health treatment is like impossible and out of reach for millions and millions of people and so i i, I yeah i sympathize a lot with people who like see this as the most um realistic chance for them to get some sort of psychological relief. So what I'm getting from that is it's also important to, it's a component used with therapy as well. So it's not like you're just taking the pill and all your answers are in this pill. You have to use it in harmony with therapy and, and talking and, and um, talking before the experience and after the experience. And that combined is, has a positive effect. Yes, 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 yes. And there's a lot of, yeah, and there's even some places that offer like um, integration services specifically. They're not offering any psychedelic therapy, but they'll offer integration services. Um, again, because I'm not like in, in psychiatry, I don't know a lot of those services, but I know Fluence, mm-hmm. F-L-U-E-N-C-E, is one of those. Um, Ingmar Gorman and Elizabeth Nielsen um, came to talk at UPenn uh just like a few weeks ago, late, uh, late February, and they gave a really good talk about what psychedelic integration is, why it's important, 
what their services are um, and uh, like why why yeah like how, why integration like is, is such an important like step that is often like overlooked um, by people. So yeah. yeah. How is, but MDMA is still Schedule One drug, right? Yes. So how do you get access to it to do studies? I mean, do you have to get a special permit? How does that work? Can you create it yourself? Where do you get it from? Um, I don't think you could create it yourself unless you had like some sort of like, li- yeah, creating it yourself is something I'm not super familiar with. I'm sure if you had like a special DEA license to like create, to synthesize it, you could. Um, but yeah, you just have to apply for a scheduled uh, controlled substances license. Uh, so like my professor has a license that is for scheduled two and three substances. Cause for example, we have to use ketamine all the time in mm. um, animals for sedation. Um, and so we just, uh, for us, it's just a process of having to amend our license to have a schedule one, um, authorization as well. So we can get, um, those, those substances. It's a lot easier though, for us to use them in our studies because I'm working with cells in a Petri dish or I'm working with animals as opposed to working with, uh, human uh, subjects. And Mm. since these things are classified as having no medical application, you, it's really hard to get approval to use these in people. Um, and I think that's why a lot of the early studies were focusing on uh, patients that already they had end of life, uh, threat, life-threatening cancer, mm. um, because it was the idea that this was already a, a, a population that just needed, like, it was a population, uh, patient population that it was kind of, like, better to take like, a risk with then if, if there were a risk, like a physiological risk of psychedelics, that it would be better to start with a population that already has life-threatening cancer than a population that is um, relatively like healthy physiologically. And um, yeah, so it, it is definitely more challenging for human trials than it is for like in vivo animal work or in vitro like tissue work like I'm doing. So you just file a, a petition to the DEA, is it? Yes. And yeah, yeah, and they're able to grant you access because how can you talk a little bit too about? I know there was a lot of studies done in the seventies, and I'm sure after that, but it seems primarily like around that time. Then did they peter off? Did they make it more difficult for scientists and and uh, university students and other people to r- research drugs and their and their positive effects? Um, and because the the whole mindset seems to be changing now with all the therapeutic qualities that they offer. But it seems like for a long time that there was a crackdown on on psychedelics and that the government um, had it off limits. And I'm sure that and it's still off limits, but, uh, you know, it seems to be more integrating into the mainstream and more acceptable now. But also that um, they're sort of maybe easing the restrictions for some of the research that was harder to do maybe a decade ago. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, it uh, yeah, it definitely it cracked down after 1970. That's, that's when the Controlled Substances Act was passed um, under Nixon, um, and MDMA was added in, onto that list of compounds. I believe like sometime in the 80s. Um, and although technically you could still have just apply for like a DEA license, it was just something that, for all intents and purposes, was just not accessible to just anyone. You have to have probably have had like, um, from what I understand, in the, historically you would have had to have had a uh, a, a, you would have had to have had already experience working with these drugs if you were working like closely with like a federal agency as opposed to just like an independent research at a university. You had a better chance of getting access to these compounds, and so you saw that like sharp decrease in like their um, accessibility for research purposes. Um, 
But then, yeah, in the early, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, studies like the, the treating of uh, anxiety and depression in patients with uh, life-threatening cancer, um, studies showing what the, uh, trying to characterize like, what the subjective experience was like. Um, this is like Roland Griffith, like Johns Hopkins. Um, those kinds of studies helped, I feel like, steer public opinion from being so like afraid of these compounds. Mm-hmm. And we, um, and, and just from there, more and more studies have just gone off to show that it's not the, uh, as dangerous as people have like made them out to be, that it doesn't, um, you know, destroy your chromosomes. It doesn't cause mutations. It's not a carcinogenic compounds, um, that they have, uh, that they're not psychologically dangerous, um, under the right conditions. And so as more and more evidence of their well-being comes out, they just have become, it's become increasingly easier to like enter uh, this like area of research um, for people. Although federal, although receiving federal funding for this still remains very tricky. Um, so a lot of the researchers tend to rely predominantly on private funding for mm-hmm. organizations like MAPS or Hector or uh, the Beckley um, Foundation. Um, and so, yeah. But federal funding is, is really more like the the uh, limiting valve on this right now. You mentioned ketamine, and that's another one that I have some questions about because um, that that's ultimately, and I think you mentioned it as well, a tranquilizer um, of some sort. Yeah, is I it think, a mild tranquilizer or minor minor anesthetic? Yeah, it's uh, I yeah, it's a mild it's a mild uh, anesthetic. Yeah, it's a mild anesthetic. Um, it. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty robust, like sedative anesthetic, but it, it, uh, it does, it's, it's classified under like dissociative, but it is also has a lot of like overlap with like psychedelics. Like people have had like there's reports of like mystically mystical experiences that people have under psych- uh, under ketamine. Um, it is also like a, has anti-inflammatory effects. Um, I think it's actually like a, a study, uh, where they gave traumatic brain injury to a mouse uh, gave a ketamine expecting it, the animal to recover worse, but actually recover better due to the mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory effects of ketamine. Um, it also induces like structural plasticity in neurons the same way that all the psychedelics do. So it, it's, uh, despite not acting directly on serotonin, it has a lot of overlap with them. Can you talk, um, can you just explain rather what plasticity means? Is, does that mean changing the thought or changing like sort of the 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 tran- the way things are transmitted in your brain the way that or your thought pattern to some degree yeah so i'd say the it neural uh, stru- like that neural plasticity is just kind of like the term that means that your brain uh, can modulate like the weights on different like synapses so like synapses are how like neurons connect and so if a neuron is connected to 10 different neurons um, different neurons might be weighted differently. Two neurons firing off at a specific time onto this one cell might mean one thing. These other three firing at the same time onto it might mean a different thing. Um, and what it seems that this does is it, incre- it, it increases the number of, uh, it induces um, uh, the generation of new synapses and the generation of like new like little like dendrites, like branches of, of neurons. Um, so it allows your brain to struct, uh, to at a neurobiological level like physically rewire the way that it's connected Mm. um and i think that then manifests in like behavioral plasticity so you're able to break out of like you you're able to kind of like form new habits new behavioral habits and new thought habits 
Um, but it sticks because of the underlying like, neurological like effects. So ketamine is a tool that could help you accomplish that. Yes. Yeah. It seems that it, it works. It, its effects are less um, long, long of a duration as other things like psilocybin. Um, uh, there was actually like a study just very recently published, I think, showing that like, the, yeah, like on an animal model depression, ketamine was antidepressive, but it was like a very short lived, like a week mm. or so effects um at like a low dose while like a low dose of psilocybin um i think works like something like six weeks eight weeks so for reasons that we're still like figuring out um it does have psychedelic effects and it's very similar but its efficacy is not as long lived that was another rumor growing up uh so that they because it's the same as k right ketamine k that it was a, a horse tranquilizer, some kind of dog tranquilizer, but there is something called a, a K hole. I've never done K, so I'm just I'm talking off things that I, I've uh, heard. But is if you take too much of it, does it put you in sort of like a just like a sleep kind of thing where you? Yeah, uh, shut everything <clears throat> off and. Um. I yeah. You know, I'm honestly not too familiar with like the the yeah i'm not too familiar with ketamine that's something i, I don't okay. know too much about but i think yeah I, I i i feel that because it is yeah it is using like surgery that definitely if you took too much you would just like clonk out and pass out yeah there's a place in new york uh called mind bloom i believe have you heard of this hmm. place i guess they're yeah. uh, they just opened from what i understand and, and they're offering treatment ketamine treatments uh, I think it's like $250 a session or something. I'm not sure what you get. I just was checking out their website. I thought it was pretty interesting that um, they're offering that and they're also able to do that because, um, you know, is ketamine legal though? Because they use it for surgeries and stuff. So is it, uh, what's the status on that? I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that yeah, ketamine is, uh, I can't remember like the, the exact term for this but like basically there's a bunch of different clinical applications that it is okay to use ketamine for one mm. like such as like depression so there are a bunch of legal cl- uh, ketamine clinics all across the country um what's interesting is that between the clinics there's like a variation of like how they practice that oh um, so that it's that, not just a that's not a revolutionary or one-of-a-kind thing that they're offering in new york that these clinics exist throughout the country yes yeah so there's oh. def- yeah there's definitely like several of those um but what can vary between them is like the, the kind of care they provide. Some of them might think, okay, we're just going to, we're going to give you ketamine at like a, a lowish dose. So it's not like hallucinogenic um, because we think that it's the physiological effects, not the subjective effects that matter here. So as long as we give you ketamine, you'll feel better. And there is some improvement with those people. Um, but some, some of the clinics, it's more of a, um, more of like a traditional like psych- psychotherapy approach where they're using a low, uh, uh, like kind of like low hallucinogenic dose of ketamine or a hallucinogenic dose of ketamine um, and treating it like a psychotherapy, like the, similarly to the other um, psychotherapy sessions where they do a lot of pre-integration before you take it, then you take it, they sit with you, they make sure you're okay. And then there's integration work after that as well. So there's different ways in how uh, clinics approach it. Some definitely, some have the therapist there. Some just give me music and say, we'll see you like in an hour. Um, so I think the the services that are providing like the integration work and everything it, it is, they will probably be more effective. And I, I probably rely on those more if I were going to go to them. And again, it's like a, a 
combined with therapy or it's a, it's a guided, I think that the, the word they use is guided, um, a trip. If you want to use the word trip, it's a guided experience. You're not just, they're not just giving it to you and then you walk home and take it on your own. They're kind of, you know, you're supervised and they're talking to you and in, in, in an ideal situation anyway, in some of the yeah. better clinics, is that right? Yeah, it's more, yeah, they do, um, they do talk to you a lot like beforehand, um, to like prepare you for the experience and have your intention like in the right place. Um, but it's, I wouldn't say it's guided. So this interesting concept of like the, uh, inner and in, what was the, uh, healing and, oh man, I, I am missing the, the way it's exactly phrased, but it's like inner healing or inner intelligence, your inner intelligence knows how you're going to heal, what you need to be doing. Like, so all they're doing, there's just providing like grounding support. So mm. if you, for some reason, like halfway through, like, let's say a session, you're like, I feel like, like, oh my God, like, where am I? Like, I'm, I'm, and you see somebody panicking, maybe they just like hold your hand or they put like a, a hand on your shoulder and just kind of like, squeeze a little. It's like, hey, hi, are you okay? Yeah. And then that's all, and that's all they needed. Just mm. a little grounding presence. Like, it's okay. Hey, it's all right. Go back to what you were doing. And if they want to talk, they can, but it's usually like, they're just, they're trying to help the person go like inside and like work on like whatever it is that inner intelligence is knows that you need to be working on. What is the addictive, um, probabilities of, of ketamine? Is, is it high? Is it, is there a, a possibility of, of developing an addiction to it? Is it a low possibility? I think compared to like most compounds, it is definitely, I feel like it's definitely lower than most compounds, but higher than most psychedelics. Um, although I'm not like super well-versed on the addictive properties of ketamine, mm. but I, 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 yeah, most, most psychedelics, if not all have, um, this anti-addictive property. Um, and ketamine definitely has been used. Like do I have an animal studies like showing that ketamine, I think can be used as like, um, uh, an, an addiction uh, treatment, um, but it, it's it's addictive potential in humans is something I'm not super familiar with. Mm. Uh, psilocybin has a very low addiction probability, or, or how that's not phrased well, but I think you know what I mean. It, people don't generally become addicted to psilocybin, although I guess you you could love that experience and want to experience that all the time, but it's not like cocaine or something like that. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Most psychedelics have like an extremely like low, like chances of, of, of like, it won't form a physiological addiction. I could definitely see individuals maybe like forming like psychological addictions mm -hmm. and dependence to psychedelics. But yeah, there's no withdrawal symptoms. There's no like, um, like strong, like physio, like, like craving, like craving some like physiological, like craving, um, of, uh, psychedelics, um, psychologically, uh, you can be addicted to anything, could be gambling or like video games or, uh, TV, your phone, social media. So definitely, I'm sure there are plenty of people that do have like um, some degree of uh, addiction to psychedelics, but it's definitely a, a very rare thing to develop. A lot, well, not a lot, but definitely uh, a handful or more municipalities and I, I think just cities right now are decriminalizing psilocybin, right? I think Santa Cruz did here, uh, Denver. Um, I'm sure there's a few others that I, I'm missing. And um, do you think that's going to be the next, like, cannabis? There, It's just going to sort of, you know, snowball from here and more people are going to decriminalize it. It's going to become more accepted, maybe start medicinally and then 
you know, gain uh, acceptance recreationally? Yeah, I, I think it will. I think similarly to cannabis, it definitely, uh, a lot of the, the cities have been like decriminalized nature campaigns. So, um, I guess I would like cover, um, things like Iboga and like psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, but I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. You said like, if, if it'll be similar to like cannabis, I think yeah, it'll start gaining more traction and other cities will start doing this. I know there's like a decriminalized New York campaign that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard like rumors of like a decriminalized like Philadelphia or decriminalized Pennsylvania campaigns that might be going on. But I would hope that unlike with cannabis uh, campaigns that have happened in states and cities across America, that we are, uh, that we can learn lessons from the, the, what happened with cannabis and kind of do things a little bit better. So, you know, for example, it's, it's crazy, but in some areas where cannabis has then become uh, legalized or, or decriminalized, you still see, you know, counterintuitively increases in the arrest of black people for mm. uh, um, the stopping or, and, and attaining of black people for possession of cannabis or like using cannabis as like the, the reasonable suspicion to stop somebody and that's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it makes us ask, like, what is, what was the point of, like, doing this? And, like, what, like, if we wanted to bring, like, make a better world through this legislation, are we making it? Because it seems like it's not working. And so hopefully legislation, like, if, I, if we were going to be involved on something like Decriminalize Pennsylvania, which if there is a group like that that ends up starting, um, or we're the ones who end up starting that, we would want the legislation to include uh, caveats for how communities can have like their own um, have uh, avenues to kind of be self-sustaining with their own like use of, of psychedelics. So allowing for not just uh, a company to grow this, but allowing for uh, individuals to grow this, allowing uh, including language that makes it harder for like corporations to kind of like uh, monopolize this and, and including uh, language in this that, uh, offers like reparations to like communities that maybe are more targeted by like the war on drugs. Um, and I think something that, you know, we really want to avoid repeating from the cannabis, uh, movement is demonizing other drugs in the, um, in the, uh, other drugs and other drug users in the attempt to get more liberties for like cannabis use. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the arguments of cannabis was, you know, Sure, cannabis, you know, it's just cannabis. It's not heroin. Like, you know, we're not asking you to allow us to like, listen, I'm not saying legalize heroin. I'm not saying legalize cocaine. Those things are bad. That's awful. Oh my God, never. We're just saying weed. Weed is harmless. Like, I mean, mm. it's weed. It's like not that bad, which, yeah, like I under, I see where people are coming from with that argument, but the argument I feel like is more so that criminalizing drug use, even if it's a harmful drug, even if it's fentanyl drug use, it's not going to help anybody criminalizing. Yeah. It will never like bring some, like never provide someone with support. will never make the situation any better. Usually um, makes it and, worse. Yeah. And so hopefully as we're, you know, some decriminalized nature campaigns have already been using very similar like language. They're like, Hey, this is shrooms. This is acid. This is just, you know, ayahuasca. This isn't going to kill you. This isn't like addictive. You know, we would never say like decriminalize heroin, you know, but this come on, you know, and I, I would hope that we don't, repeat that if we were doing that in Pennsylvania, that we would say, you know, we want to decriminalize these compounds because it's a baby step towards a goal of decriminalizing drugs. But that, yeah, you know, on, on a principled stance is that we do not think criminalizing drug use is uh, ethical or moral. And we think that it, 
it, we have seen this already play out enough where we mm-hmm. see that it just causes more harm than good. It creates a black market for drugs that leads to accidental overdoses, adulteration of substances, and it's it yeah, it creates more problems than existed originally. I know someone with I want to say a felony, uh he he received a felony for psilocybin a long time ago, maybe a decade and a half ago. Um, but I, I agree, and I know now with some with marijuana becoming legal, they're uh, overturning a lot of convictions. Um, the, the, I know, I think it was Chicago overturned like twenty five thousand. I, I I might be wrong on that number. I should double check that. But I know places are are making strides to do that. But I I hear what you're saying, and and I agree that arresting someone for an addiction doesn't help them, because especially when they get out. Now they can't get a job. You know, they have right. this on their record. It just like spirals down and it doesn't help. It doesn't help them stop using maybe for the short time that they're incarcerated if they're incarcerated. But, um, yeah, it's uh, I agree. There's there's got to be a healthier way to do it, a more effective way. Yeah. Um, um, and it's it's interesting as well, because um, one one model that I've been exposed to one way of viewing addiction that I've been exposed to through like all the psychedelic stuff is that addiction is not in and of itself. This like brain disorder. You cannot say that X substance will be addictive in X percent of individuals. Like every single time it is like addiction is a deeply, is deeply dependent on behavioral context and environmental context and social context. And so addiction is just kind of a, a symptom of something else that's underlying uh, it's, it's under, it's a symptom of something else. So maybe you have <clears throat> trauma from like your childhood and you were unknowingly self-medicating that trauma with alcohol. And so now you have an addiction to alcohol, but is alcohol the problem that we need to focus on or do we need to focus on the fact that maybe, uh, you had a trauma from your childhood or that you were sexually abused at one point, or that you have a, a chronic economic anxiety that you won't be able to pay your bills. And so you drink all the time and, or smoke cigarettes all the time because you have a chronic economic mm-hmm. anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it, it, it's a, uh, it's kind of like a social justice issue in the sense that when we treat it like a, like it's just, just purely like a brain disorder, that it's the drugs, it's certain drugs that are bad, that it makes your society like focus on the wrong things, you know, instead of investing millions of dollars on trying to, uh, in, in trying to, um, police, uh, you know, like DA drug enforcement and, and preventing drugs from coming into the United States and in finding drug dealers and arresting people and prosecuting people that, that those resources and that time to be invested into social workers, into education, mm-hmm. like just having better schools, mm-hmm. having better resources for parents. So, you know, having universal like child health, uh, child care, um, it, it's 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 so it's a social issue I think at its root when uh, addiction it's environmental it's social it's a it's 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 not a substance being inherently addictive and I think that's why at the end of the day most people that are addicted the way they stop being addicted is that they just stop being addicted mm. they just stop using the drug because it's still like it's they still have more control than I feel like the narrative that we paint has you know like it paints as they don't have any control and. It's. I don't think that the fact that there's still like a choice there demands any less empathy for them because I. It's a hard choice to not use, but it just means that if we can help them, if we can bring them up, that they will not use. If we can provide for these people who are suffering, they won't 
use. Right. There's a, uh, yeah, misconception that it's a lack of willpower, but it's not that. And, and also what you're saying, it sounds like is if you can get to the root cause of what's causing the addiction, whether it be the trauma from your childhood or the, um, you know, scarcity of income to pay your bills or whatever, you could help ameliorate or fix the situation uh, there by starting at what's what's driving it instead of starting backwards with the addiction and you know or I guess you know starting with the addiction and going backwards uh, yeah. you know just go, getting to that that core of of what's causing it from the get go yeah um, there's a really good researcher that I feel like a lot of people might enjoy reading up on it uh, it's, his name is uh, um, Carl Hart mm-hmm. and he is I believe Columbia professor maybe the head of like psychi- psychiatry or psychology department and he wrote like something in a uh, scientific American um, asking like, is, is addiction really a brain disease and goes through like makes that argument that it's not a brain disease and that, you know, yeah, despite all the millions or billions of dollars that we've invested in trying to study it as a brain disorder and trying to develop treatments from that, like that, that, that plan of attack that it hasn't really yielded anything. There still isn't a, pill that you can take and you know 80 percent people will stop being alcoholics after they take this pill or mm-hmm. that you take this pill and now you, you're not addicted to cocaine anymore like so all that research has not really produced a benefit to, like a direct benefit to society and a direct benefit to the people that we were trying to help versus if we maybe had invested in like um understand better understanding the underlying social causes of addiction and in investing in treating those social causes of addiction not the underlying like like the 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 effects that these drugs have like on the brain and trying to understand like how it changes the brain is it addiction though is it hereditary to some degree on some level um if you have parents that were alcoholics and smokers are you do you have a higher risk of you know becoming a smoker and a drinker at some point yeah you definitely do it definitely is like partially hereditary so Mm -hmm. like i know that there are for example some like uh there's some genetic uh differences where like one gene might make it so you have to smoke more nicotine to be able to get a buzz. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, maybe it means that like your friend and you split a pack and he feels like, Oh my God, this is the best thing. And you're just like, "Ah, I feel it kind of, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yes, you will be probably less likely to develop like a really, um, intense, like a dick, like if I'm remembering like the, how it's likelihood correctly that you, you know, you'll have a different, um, likelihood to, form an addiction so yeah genetic factors definitely are a variable um for sure uh I'm, I'm curious how much those genetic variables you know are affected by the lived experiences of like your family members so um maybe it's that your father and your grandfather your great-grandfather all had addiction but maybe your great-grandfather's addiction started because he came over to america as an immigrant and it was very tough and he had his own traumas that he was self-medicating with alcohol with, and yeah. now yeah there's a genetic factor but it all goes back to like some trauma that was never dealt with and just propagated down the family tree. Psilocybin has been around for, I mean, there's ancient civilizations that were taking psilocybin, right? I mean, they uh, were using it for spiritual, like shamans and. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It has like a rich history, like in cultures, like uh, in every continent, I think, except for like Antarctica. Mm. So yeah, every, everyone has uh, some rich history with involving psychedelics. And they, um, it's just the, the mindset of psychedelics in this country as, is becoming more accepted as we were talking about. Um, but 
in ancient civilizations, these were these were spiritual things. I, I think at some point here, I don't know how it was ever considered like a maybe a party thing because I've never wanted to take psilocybin and go to a party. I feel like that's the worst thing I'd want to do. <laughs> it was more like I just want to take it and have a spiritual experience and connect to the universe in a sense. That, that that was my feeling and take on it, and I, I think uh, maybe some other people share that sentiment that you know it's uh, when you take it, you're having a sort of a spiritual or awakening experience that, you know, it's it wouldn't really do so well maybe in a in a club with loud music or something. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think the only re- like I I can understand. I feel like part of the reason that people try to use it probably like at clubs is yeah, lack of, uh, of understanding of how much set and setting really matter. And so maybe a lot of people have had positive experiences taking this in like at clubs or at raves and I'm sure, but I think people just need to appreciate that it's a very volatile thing. So maybe you're ha- it's every time you've been with your friends and everything's been fine, but maybe if you're on psilocybin and, all of a sudden you like lose your friends like at the, at the rave and you can't find them. You don't know like how that might affect you psychologically. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, I definitely, yeah, it's definitely something I wouldn't recommend to people to do at raves. It was a something again, rumors that, but I think this one is true. It's all really mental when you're taking it because how you're feeling and what you're thinking really, uh, manifests like a million percent. Right. So if you're like, you know, d- depressed or you're scared, like you're saying you lost your friends, that could that could lead to a bad trip. Whereas if you're comfortable and you are, you know, um, you're in a maybe a quiet place or listening to good music or whatever works for you, you could have a very serene experience and a very, uh, you know, um, different time <laughs> than you would otherwise. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, and there's actually one, st- yeah, it's, Set and setting is like everything. Um, I've heard psychedelics described as um, uh, super placebos. Basically, it uh, yeah, whatever you're thinking is about to happen, or whatever like you think this is going to manifest is it's gonna you're you're gonna bias yourself into that being coming what actually occurs. Um, and there's a study that's interesting. I don't remember if this was with people undergoing um, like what kind of like psychedelic experience. Uh, maybe it was salvinorin. Maybe it was ketamine. I, I cannot remember, but Basically, they left them in a, they gave them the, the, the drug, left them in a room, and be, they basically had it in like two groups. One person just like in a normal, like, like clinical room, and the other person in a normal clinical room, but with a box just left there. There was never like brought, nobody ever brought their attention to it. They never said anything about it, but it was just this box that set like with like a huge like needle, and it said like, use only in case of absolute emergency. Mm. And they just like left it there. And the people who were in the room with that box, you know, reported feeling a lot more anxious, like during their experience. And nobody ever said that's for you, but it was just there. Their thoughts are, I think, I wonder what that's for. And now you're like freaking out. Oh my God, what if that's for me? Oh my God, they're going to inject me with something? Oh no. (laughs) You know, so yeah, we're very, very delicate in that state. Wow. Um, Can you talk about how, because now they're they're saying that psilocybin is like a groundbreaking tool for depression how does it affect how what does it, what does it do to your brain that would make it that would help with anxiety and depression uh after because that seems to be more long-lasting effect after the um the effects of this the psychedelic wears off it seems to people have improvements after that is that correct 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, psilocybin has gained FDA breakthrough therapy status, which I think had only been given to cancer drugs um, before before it before the psychedelics received it. It was something that only um, cancer drugs had gotten um, before. Uh, so I got breakthrough therapy status for the treatment treatment resistant depression and uh, for major depressive disorder. Um, that's psilocybin. And yeah, the way that it works, is very sim. It's, it's because it's weird. The psychedelics seem to treat like just such a wide range of, uh, uh, clinical like targets such as PTSD or addiction, um, and anxiety and, uh, depression. But it seems that it is basically your, uh, the, so an article called, uh, the relaxed brain, there's a theory. It's like relaxed brain under psychedelics. Basically your when you're perceiving the world, you're taking in all of reality. If you have these, um, this weighing of, you know, you're not seeing like, you're not seeing an objective reality. You are seeing a reality that is, um, modulated by your like higher, like cognition. And so if you're depressed, maybe that means that when I drop my Coke bottle on the floor and it's spilled, I think, Oh my God, another failure. I'm only failure. I can't do anything right, including drink Coke. I am a failure. But that all that happened is a Coke bottle drop. But like all these, like all this manipulation of what reality and how I'm perceiving my experience is occurring. And with psychedelics, much like with like a traumatic experience, you get to like relax that like controlling of like what your perception is and you just get to perceive and then experience and, you know, realize and, and come to whatever realizations you end up coming to. Um, if you're depressed, it, it might be that, you know, everything is great and, you know, connections are super important and that you love your family and that, you know, you're fine. I, I, I can't speak to like what the realizations that somebody with depression would have under them because mm. I've never had that experience. But um, yeah, it is, uh, it, it lets you, it lets you um, relax those, um, those uh, modulations of like, your like sensory perception of your experience um and the the plasticity like at the biological level kind of i it seems might be helping those changes lock in so that when you're sober it's not just because your whole you know your whole brain was like super like uh, active and so you came to these realizations during the experience but now they get to lock in because your brain was more physically plastic and uh, so you're able to lock in those new perceptions and those new thought patterns and narratives in but they're healthy narratives and healthy thought patterns mm. that you're locking in. Can you, can we point to a specific uh, chemical that's being released that is letting you tap into that higher consciousness, if you want to call it that, that's giving you these visual, uh, different visual perceptions and maybe audio perceptions? Yeah. So I would say it's less like uh, a, a, specific chemical that's doing that versus it is that your brain has like a very structured way of working where there's you know uh your visual cortex like has communication between other areas of the brain and it's very ordered and it's very regulated um and there's just a bunch of different like like there's a bunch of different like it's almost like thinking of like like uh, just networks, a bunch of different networks uh, in your brain. And whenever you are under the experience of psychedelics, it seems that it's just everything in the brain is trying to talk to everything else and all that organization falls apart. So that's why some people might be synesthetic when they're like under psychedelics, because usually the auditory cortex isn't really t- 
talking to the visual cortex, but then you take this and now it is now it's sound is vision, vision is sound. And my mm. thoughts are also sound and my taste also affects my thoughts, which affects my vision, which affects my sound. And because everything is talking to each other. And so that kind of, yeah, that, that kind of creates a lot of the psychedelic experience and the idea of like higher con like uh, of raised consciousness. Um, so we don't, we can't measure consciousness. We still don't know what consciousness is. Um, but one correlate of consciousness, one approximation of it seems to be uh, entropy. And so it's the amount of entropy in a system. And so like uh, simplest way, I guess, would be just the, the, the amount of organization and the amount of randomness in a system could be measured by like entropy. And uh, there's a paper called the Entropic Brain Theory that kind of like tries to explain this in the context of like psychedelic, like brain imaging studies. So tropic brain theory. Um, and basically when you're under the experience of psychedelics, because all the ordered connections and, you know, this has to go here and this connects to this and this connects to this just kind of falls apart and everything's connected and everything, the amount of entropy just like shoots up. And so, and if, if you're relating entropy to consciousness, that's, you know, a higher consciousness because you have more entropy, more things are talking to each other, more, more, uh, activity in general is going on. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so you, that, that, yeah. Do you think that's how things really are? And when you're not on that, you just can't see that because huh. yeah, I don't know. I'm just, uh, just kind of curious because if that's that taking you to a higher plane, uh, is that, and I'm sure there's planes higher than that, but is, is that really a step closer to how things really are that we just can't perceive? Uh, I think I would, I would wager. Yes. So there's this, uh, I feel like every other sentence. So there's this interesting study, but <laughs> there's this interesting yeah. study that, uh, the, the dude basically did a, uh, uh, a, a simulation where he showed these, um, he had different creatures trying to survive in this simulated world. Some creatures saw reality in a very simplified way. The reality of their virtual world, they're very simple. Like this is like this good or this, and this is this bad. And this is this good and this is this bad. And his other creatures saw all of like the data, like in the simulation, just saw literally all of the data possible that, it, that it could use. And the creature that had a less of a perception of reality, as the simulation was survived better. And so it showed that this kind of like seeing everything understand, like seeing all of the picture is not conducive to surviving as an animal and appropriating and, and carrying on your species that you gotcha. need to kind of have a limiting valve on what you see. And it seems that for us, the limiting valve might be space and time. And so I think that's why when people have these experiences, it's like, I didn't see things in the sense and, and, and like and as just like, Oh, that's over there. It's like, there's more than just space. There's more than just time. Time kind of loses its meaning a little bit. Um, things transcend time. And I think there are elements of truth to that because I think it is letting us see um, it, it is making it difficult for our brains and to kind of create the, the functional and helpful version of consciousness that allows us to survive. It's breaking it apart and just letting us experience what's actually there all the time, but it's overwhelming. And I think that's why, like, I imagine like tripping like persistently and just seeing all of reality all the time. We yeah. would never live. <laughs> we never survive yeah. like in the wild. That makes a lot of sense. So it, it kind of behooves us to not see that all the time to function uh, efficiently in the world that we live in. 
in in the reality that we live in. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you doing studies with these drugs? I mean, in in the society, your society, uh, with people. I mean, are, are, do you have psilocybin that people are taking, and how how do, how are you uh, compiling your research? So my research is not involved with human subjects. We want to, we were like consistently trying to like speak with researchers at Penn to see if like they would be interested in starting a clinical trial at Penn. It's like a long-term shot yeah. for our, uh, our club, but my specific research is working with cells. So most of the research is with humans, but because it's with humans, it's very hard to piece apart exactly what's happening because humans aren't, yeah, you can't like just like split a human in half and like, like, like rip apart the brain and be like, All right, what happened? Right. Um, so my project is trying to use these like spheres of neurons. They're, they're embryonic uh, neurons from a rat. Um, we take hippocampal neurons and we use cortical neurons. Uh, we plate them on top of like a bed of electrodes. We see how they mature over time. And at a certain time point, we add a specific psychedelic substance and then we um, we see what the activity is like immediately after we add it. And we're going to then look and see how does their maturation and how does their uh, activity look like maybe two weeks after the experience? Does it look different from the activity of the near cells that never got exposed to psychedelics? Um, what are those changes like? Um, and so hope, this will hopefully be a development of like a test bed that people can use to better understand what psychedelics are doing and also using it as like a um a neurotoxicity like uh, screening um tool so that you know it's like a lot of compounds that have been developed by like alexander shulgin for example like in tcal and pcal are these two compilations of like dozens or hundreds of chemicals um that have not been used in clinical settings yet and this would be a great way and and some of those might have a lot of clinical efficacy you know maybe we can develop compounds that you know, have certain differences between each other that maximize their effectiveness for certain specific things. Mm -hmm. And maybe this will be a, a tool to help us at least see like, what are they doing? Is it toxic to the cells? Does it kill cells? Does it damage like the activity? Is it epileptic? Like, what does it do? Um, so that's, that's one of the projects is developing this test bed to uh, be able to study psychedelics um, at a more finesse, like neurobiological level very quickly. Um, and the other project is, uh, and this is, more like this is like uh maybe like a couple of years away because i'm we're still doing the test bed project right now mm -hmm. but it would be seeing if uh psychedelics can um improve the recovery from uh traumatic brain injury or uh stroke in an animal model like so in a rat um the idea being that after you receive a brain injury a lot of the recovery that people do experience is just plasticity it's your brain getting an injury and then figuring out how to work again, despite that injury. So it has to kind of rewire a little bit. And it's like, okay, I may have a gash here or like an, a bruise in my brain, but like I can still do X thing because I've re I've, my brain has rewired to not need that mm -hmm. specific section. Um, and so since these drugs promote plasticity, we feel it might allow for that, what the healing mechanism that already exists to just do its job even better. Um, but it's also an inflammatory component to that where your brain is just kind of continuously like keeps it. it it's infl inflammatory response is helpful at first, but then it kind of just goes bonkers and doesn't stop. And it goes on for chronic periods of time. Um, and it's, so it's a chronic debilitation to have that traumatic brain injury. We hope that these things can reset that inflammation and just 
bring you back down to like a non-inflammatory state in your brain. Um, so it'll just keep it from progressing. And, uh, it'll keep the brain injury from continuing to deteriorate over time. Uh, where can people go? So your website is uh, penpsychedelics.org, but and and you mentioned some research uh, papers in our talk. If people want to learn more about psychedelics, what are some good resources that they could turn to, uh, and yeah. maybe possibly read some of this research? Um, one good res- uh, resource would be Sugal. So it's p s o o g l e dot com. That is a project that um, one of our co-founders and a member in our club uh, had worked on. And it's basically a search engine to try to find like trip reports and as well as like articles and uh, things published about psychedelics. Um, Another good thing to do is go if you go to the Imperial College of London or the Johns Hopkins uh, Research Center. Both of those have both, both of those universities have a psychedelic research center at this point and they have uh on their websites like a list of the publications that they've uh, put out um and it's in a lot of incredible research coming out from those universities there's definitely more than that but if you read those papers you will get a good exposure to a lot of the work that's going on and you'll be able to bounce around from those papers that you can see who they're citing and be able to keep digging and digging and digging um sometimes these things are behind paywalls mm-hmm. unfortunately um to that i say that if you can't get something because of a paywall email researchers i you know researchers will mail probably email you back the pdf of the paper i don't think most people don't care they hate the paywalls as well and if mm-hmm. somebody in the public wants to read research i think they're very excited to make that happen um and if there's a paper that you think you you know about but you can't find um yeah, like email people in like the psychedelic societies where you live. You know, if you're in the Pennsylvania or the Philly region, like I'd be happy to like email us and we'll try to like hit you back with a paper PDF. Um, yeah. And what about someone who wants to try psilocybin but is nervous? Would you have any advice for that person uh, just generally and or what they could possibly do to have a good experience while they're while they take psilocybin? I think or does that vary by person? Right. I think if, yeah, it definitely varies by person to an extent, but I think that a rule of thumb is to just not, um, I, for, for me, I like the exa- the metaphor of, you know, it's like a roller coaster. You get onto a roller coaster, you're resigned that there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and there's going to be some parts that are scary, but that's, you're in the roller coaster seat for a reason, because at some point you told yourself, I want to. I want to experience that. I want to be on a roller coaster. So just really consider that there will be ups and downs. You don't have ultimate control over that experience and that it's going to go where it's going to go and resign yourself to that because there might be things that seem unpleasant that occur or scary. But if you're just like, huh, so this is what is happening now. That is just, that is the experience that I am going to have. Then it doesn't become it's counterintuitive. It doesn't become like a bad trip. It just becomes an experience and you are, and it doesn't like drag you down and suck you in like in a, in a a harmful way. So just, yeah, don't fight things. Just let things happen. Um, trust yourself, trust your, your own like inner healing knowledge. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Just relax and let go. Don't resist things. Um, there's a lot of good literature that, um, has frameworks and ways of viewing the experience that might be helpful to different people. I've know some people have 
gotten a lot of help from the Tim, uh, Tim Leary's, um, the psychedelic experience, mm-hmm. which is based on like the, the, the Tibetan book of the dead. Um, uh, James Fadiman's, uh, the psychedelic explorers guide. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of those kinds of books that give you frameworks from which to kind of, um, uh, better understand the experiences. Um, uh, doing the pre-work, so journaling, maybe for like a few weeks before, you know, and like, I think the moment that you, you, you decide I'm going to take a psychedelic to do to, because I want to connect deeper with myself but for whatever reason, the moment you've made the decision to take the psychedelic, that's when the integration starts in that moment, ask yourself, like, what did it feel like to want to make that decision? Did I feel nervous after I, I told myself I will buy some psychedelics to then take did you feel relieved? Did you feel excited? Like, what was that like? How did you feel the next day? And just keep like looking, like keep journaling, keep like, what is, what does the, what does it mean to you that you took psychedelics and it worked? What does it, it worked mean to you? What does it went well mean to you? What does it went badly or I didn't get anything out of it mean to you? What does that look like to get something out of it? Um, just, yeah, not underestimating the importance of that, like work beforehand so that you can get the maximum um, utility out of the experience and not neglecting the uh, the effort after the experience to so continue journaling, being, okay, this thing happened, it was very challenging, and you're just, like, writing it down, and, like, like allowing yourself to, especially, like, in that, like, afterglow period where your, like, brain's still a little bit more plastic, to put in the work and, like, analyze and, like, try to understand what happened and how you're going to, like, maybe uh, live the lessons that you've learn during your experience um yeah when you take when someone takes lsd is it a similar experience where the uh, same amount of same sort of pistons are firing in the brain lsd is of course synthetic that's created in a lab but does it have a a a similar uh psychological experiences psilocybin i so LSD will last eight to 12 hours. Psilocybin will last like three to five hours, mm. um, three to six hours. Um, so that's like the main difference there in terms of like subjectively what it's like. I don't, I think that's something else that just because of the lack of like uh, a lack of like research on, on this that we don't, you know, some people say there's differences in the experience. Some think, oh, LSD is more, inter- more like, you know, more within as psilocybin is more like external, like how the world like, you know, the world interacting to you. Um, I don't think there's, yeah, I, I don't have any opinion on that. I mm. think that they're both um, capable of, of doing good things. Um, and I think whatever you think that, it, you know, if you think psilocybin is more, into, is, oh, psilocybin is more spiritual, you'll probably have a more spiritual experience because you think it's more spiritual. And so you feel that you're doing something spiritual when you took it, that's going to buy your experience. Um, uh, but yeah, actually, it's good to mention that just how you, like, you just say, yeah, LSD is synthetic. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with, like, a synthetic substance, but because it is synthetic, it is very important for everybody out there to take, you know, pro- practice proper uh, harm reduction. So test your your drugs. If you're buying drugs off the black market, you have to accept that you, you know, it doesn't matter how well you know your dealer, how much good intent your dealer has. Maybe when the, ta- the things are being made, it was made poorly. And so, it you know, you have contamination from like, some, some other compound. Um, maybe your dealer was lied to, maybe you're, you know, it, it, you never know. So it's definitely important to buy, um, test kits if they're legal where you are, um, and test the substances that you're taking because yeah, you, you never know. And there's one thing going around specifically called M-bomb, 
which for most most people, all it is is just like an extremely potent psychedelic experience, like extremely, extremely potent that can last for like a few days. But uh, it's what's weird is that it seems that there's a few cases that have been linked to it that are just like this sudden or like organ failure and no idea is known as to why that happened. It's like sudden organ failure is just like the way it was described to me. It was just like because they didn't know what happened. It was just like the person. Yeah, they just died. Wow. And and it's yeah, it's so it's, it's good to like check. It's very rare that that reaction is going to occur but it could occur. So it's just better to always like test, you know, um, you don't know if there's PCP in it. You don't know if there's fentanyl in like something. So it's just good to always check. Right. So you're taking a risk getting it on the black market. It's good to be uh, vigilant of what you're taking and, and to make sure you understand and test it if you can to make sure that it's, uh, that there's no uh, added, you know, uh, dangerous chemicals that are, that are cut into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I'll say for you know, I'll say for uh, for my own organization and, and like for me personally, definitely I'm not encouraging anyone to break U.S. law. There sure. are legal means to using psychedelics. There's like psychedelic retreats in Jamaica that are mm. unfortunately very inaccessible, but uh, by by cost. But there are psychedelic retreats in Costa Rica and Colombia and Jamaica. Um, there are now cities where these things are legal, where you could go and like get some shrooms and you know do that. You go to the Netherlands, so. Uh, definitely not encourage you want to break the law, but yeah, if you are using LSD or MDMA or anything synthetic, test your drugs. Psilocybin, I think, is the safest safest thing you can do because it's a mushroom. You see it; it's not adulterated, so you can take that with like at least a uh, a peace of mind that that is what they're taking and nothing else. Um, yeah. As, uh, before we wrap up, I just I want to ask you uh, quickly about DMT and ayahuasca. And it, what the differences are, and is it? I mean, does your brain produce DMT? I know it's a Schedule One drug, uh, but is it? It's in you, right? Is it in your brain? Is your your body's producing DMT? Um. So I don't think anyone has measured. I might be wrong with this. I don't think anyone has detected DMT in the human brain specifically. Okay. And um, but there have been uh study there was a study that was showing that they induced cardiac arrest in a rat or a mouse um and like at as like the rat is dying um there was dmt release somewhere like in the brain maybe it was like the pineal gland um there was a dmt release um endogenous dmt release so and we we know the that yes yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that there is probably dmt in the brain that it acts as like a neurotransmitter of sorts um yeah, and yeah, I, I, I believe, yeah, DMT is, I, I believe the DMT is in the, uh, present in the human body. Um, ayahuasca is an incredible, comp, uh, incredible substance um, with a lot of like, a really rich cultural history mm. um, and being used, like, especially like in the setting of like a, an ayahuasca ceremony is something that sound, has um, a lot of uh, potential. Uh, for like helping you like get in like the right set and setting of like healing and working on yourself. Um, what's interesting is that ayahuasca actually has another chemical in it as well. At least one, at least one other chemical that we're like well aware of um, called harmine, which is uh, as acts on a bunch of different receptors as well. And that's the MAO inhibitor that is in um, ayahuasca because when you drink it, DM, the DMT should be uh, died. Uh, it should be broken down, shouldn't be able to be psychoactive. But this harmine allows your body to not break down the DMT and allows it to last for a very long time. 
And th that's why that experience as opposed to like smoking DMT is very prolonged. But we thought that that, that inhibitor of that enzyme, um, Harmine, uh, was just that inhibitor that its only role was allowing DMT to work. But it also has like a bunch of its own psychoactive effects that we were like slowly coming to a better understanding of. Um, and I think it just goes to show that like, yeah, it, we're very reductionist um, in like our Western scientific way of thinking of like, okay, what is it? You know, here's this tea, but what is it that's actually doing it? Oh, it's a single thing. It's the DMT. And surely, yeah, the DMT is like obviously a huge part of like ayahuasca, but there might be a lot of other things in that brew that have some sort of like synergistic effect with DMT um, to make the experience what it is. And I'm sure it's the same thing with mush mushrooms. And that's something I would love to see one day, a study showing the effects of like psilocybin as like a pure like pill of, of psilocybin versus a fresh mushroom eaten raw. Like mm. what is the difference on the effects? Is there a difference in like the, the brain activity? Is there a difference in the therapeutic effects? Um, because it's something where like we we haven't proven that there's a difference. We just know that this compound is the most uh, potent one uh, on the brain, but there could be effects between different things that maybe aren't psychoactive on their own, but with psilocybin do have an effect. So yeah, it's a very complex mix of things. Uh, just so so I understand, because I hear those words used synonymous, synonymously or grouped together sometimes, DMT and ayahuasca. So DMT is the, the property that makes you sort of hallucinate uh, and that is in ayahuasca and other things could be in ayahuasca as well, like harmine. Is that correct? So, yeah. So I'm yeah, I, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the two plants, but it, yeah, ayahuasca is made by brewing two plants together. One of them has like a high content of DMT. So a lot of things have DMT. Most, I believe most things have at least trace amounts of DMT. Um, but this one plant has a lot of DMT and this other plant has a lot of the inhibitor that for that enzyme that would break down DMT um, and they're boiled together to make that, that drink. Um, and DMT is definitely like the, the, the main like psychoactive, like pertur perturber. And how do they, how do they extract DMT or how do they create DMT to ingest? Uh, or like smoke? for the ayahuasca or, for, or just if you wanted to experiment with DMT, um, how is that? Like if someone were to purchase it or to get it or to experience it, how is it created? How is it formed? Is it is it pulled out of something? Is it extracted? Is it created? That is honestly something I, I know very little like chemistry. So how mm. to make your own DMT is something I have no idea about. But people all. make it though is I guess what I'm saying. They're not pulling yeah. it from something else or like, you know, you're saying pineal gland or like, you know, or I'm I'm just trying to understand how it's, how it's formed. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you definitely can synth yeah, you can extract it from, uh, it's just like an extraction less than like a synthesis. So if you had like, I, I think, you know, I don't know like how well this works, but like, I, I've heard like rumors of like people like just take a bunch of like grass clippings and it's like, and through a bunch of like different uh, treatments on those grass clippings are able to extract out the, uh, the DMT that's in there. Mm. Um, and like when they make it like in uh, in ayahuasca, it's just like all the DMT just gets like boiled out and released into like the, the liquid um, along with like the other um, the inhibitor. Um, so so yeah, it's it's less synthesized at so much as it is uh, extracted out. Although you can also I'm sure synthesize that, but that's like a whole another process. 
I'm definitely interested in experiencing it. I never have, but it seems to be very eye-opening for a lot of people. They have an incredible uh, experience, mind-altering, you know, mind-opening experience. Um, and has the is the the government still have a very tight hold on DMT in terms of research and study, or is that something that's changing as well? No, it's it's unfortunately as tight as like all other psychedelics mm. for like human research. Um, yeah, it's like so super tight. I'd say it's maybe like there's there's ne- there hasn't been like a clinical trial. I don't think um, I don't think there's been a clinical trial with like just straight DMT. So yeah, it's it's probably like more uh, it's got a longer way to go than things like psilocybin and MDMA to become like clinically like an, a clinically available like therapeutic substance. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that yeah. seems really bizarre in, in terms of, like you're saying, it's it's within us or in grass or in probably everything, right? Does, does everything yeah. have it uh, natural? The, you know, uh, Mother Nature created has this chemical, but yet it's super illegal and, and the research is uh, limited because people can't really experiment with it legally or, you know, do uh, really put it under a microscope and see what's going on. Yeah, no, it's makes as much sense as it makes as much sense as all the other classifications, which is very little. Um, it's yeah, it's it's if nothing else. I mean, I think it's a tragedy for like civil liberties in the sense that I think people should have that cognitive, the cognitive liberty to, to take what they want to mess with their uh, their consciousness and explore their consciousness in their own mind, uh, however they want. Um, and I, I think especially when you think of like, like, like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, like if the pursuit of if happiness is just like this like state of mind, you have the liberty to explore that state, your state of mind, however you wish. Um, but so it's a travesty on that end. And then it's a travesty for like the science because it's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge kneecap to the um, ability for us to really investigate this robustly mm. um, scientifically and academically and try to use it for like some good in the world. And so, yeah, it's just a shame. If people want to experience it, myself included, uh, how can you do that? Where do you, I mean, I know there's countries that offer retreats, um, different things that you could possibly travel and experience. Yeah. I know there's ayahuasca retreats, like I think in Mexico, Mm -hmm. there's one ayahuasca retreat in Costa Rica that I've, I've heard a lot from like, um, just like peers. I've heard a lot of really good things about called arrhythmia in Costa Rica. Um, that's something I myself also would uh, really like to go to. Um, actually, one of the youngest uh, shamans would like uh, in the world with like an actual like lineage of like because anyone can say they're a shaman, but yeah. he has like a lineage. Of, like my grandpa, my dad was a shaman. He's a legit shaman. shaman. Yeah, and he's like the youngest shaman like in the world, or one of the youngest shamans. Um, he works at um, he does work at the uh, at the Rhythmia Center in Costa Rica. Um, so yeah, it's uh, that that's one place that I, I would recommend. Awesome. Um, did you want to talk about anything else? I mean, do you see like, where do you see this going in terms of psychedelic research, people, psychedelic adoption? Uh, was there anything that I'm missing in this conversation? I, I feel like we touched on some of the main psychedelics. Um, but uh, I mean, what's kind of your hope for the future? Where do you see it headed? And, uh, you know, hopefully in, in 10 years, maybe these things will be legal and, and people can and use them to their full capability. Yeah. Um, so I, I see in terms of just like society at large, I see these things are going to, I think the, their acceptance, their entrance into society, I feel like it's inevitable at this point because I think we've 
done enough work scientifically to kind of like peel away the um the paranoia and the propaganda from like the 60s and the 70s that these things are bad for you Mm. like we have these studies showing that they work better than anything we have available for ptsd or depression or addiction um and so i I think they're gonna they're gonna come in society one way or another um the cat's out of the bag in that sense but i think what's really interesting to me is how are we integrating them into society how are they going to come into society um we have a, a healthcare system where you know, it's already very difficult to get access to a therapist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So if what we do is integrate psychedelics into a for-profit healthcare model where people are already not being taken care of, and people already are still suffering, and it's not working for people, especially the most marginalized in our society. And those with like the greatest need for like this medicine are going to have the hardest time getting that medicine. Then what was the point of mm. All of this work and what, what was the, how did we make the world a better place? Or is this just a new division in our world? This is a new thing where it's like, oh, if you're rich and, you know, you have a good insurance plan and everything and you can take time off from work, then you can have psychedelic therapy. Oh, but poor people don't do psychedelics. That's very expensive, very, very pricey. But if you can afford it, I recommend it. And what was the point? It, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't seem to me that it's like it's an ethos of all the, yeah, it's like yeah. not any ethos of all the wanting to bring this to the world and allow people to heal you know? So, yeah, no. Um, so you think in the, in the next couple of years that it will roll out, but it's got to roll out in a way that benefits people and not just puts it out of reach for people that actually could benefit from it. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, there's already a lot of, uh, it's already a lot of entrance into kind of like a for-profit market for psychedelics. Um, I personally, I am not very, trusting of the the capital of, of, of a capitalist model for improving well-being of people i think that when there's like a, a profit incentive to be made off people's mental health that that is going to taint that process and i don't i don't i don't think we've seen it play out beneficially in this world already so i don't trust that it will just start being beneficial and it makes me nervous when you see uh like billionaires uh literally investing in psychedelic uh therapy companies and as like a stock and I'm like, wow, there's, um, it, it, it just, it feels, uh, similar. So just, it just, it, you see the same things kind of playing out that you already have, you know, yeah. people investing in healthcare because they see a profit to be made and that shouldn't be why, why psychedelics are being introduced. It's not because it's, there's a profit to be made. It should be because people have the, the right to access this kind of medicine and the right to organize their own, like, me- uh, medical practice for this you know like if you i i think that for example in, in a utopian world west philadelphia should have the right to you know have their own um uh their own very unique way of of of, of practicing psychedelic therapy where it's you know especially in like marginalized communities you have the african-american community in philadelphia could practice psychedelic therapy for people of their own community so where they understand what are the needs and issues and traumas that you're dealing with we're from the same community and I'm here to help you. Uh, I'm, I'm here to help you heal. And in a sense, it's very similar to how like a shaman is providing healing for their own community. Um, as opposed to this being like, Oh, I'm going to go to the psilocybin co uh, center, like down the block, you know, that's like in all the States and it's, they're trying to get me in the door and out the door as fast as possible. So yeah. they can get the medication in, you know, they're not personally invested in my healing. I'm just another number, another like patient that showed up as opposed to this is like my community center, like local community center is offering psychedelic therapy and I want to go there and they 
want me to feel better because I'm a member of their community and they feel personally deeply invested in my well-being. Yeah, it's just a different relationship with it. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to be the first thing is that everyone's going to see dollar signs and they're going to say, how can I capitalize on this? This seems like a ripe industry to invest in. Maybe like some of the dispensaries like here in California and elsewhere, you know. Um, is, is it hard for people to grow it on their own? Just quickly to ask, can you grow? I mean, is it, and also is it grown out of cow poop or is that also uh, <laughs> another rumor that we're going to uh, debunk today? Uh, no. So like if you were to just go walking around, so still psychedelic mushrooms actually grow wild and like every, uh, in every state, like some states are more predisposed to, to that than others. Um, but it grows in every state and it grows uh, really well. Um, at least Cubensis grows really well in um, uh, horse uh, horse manure, like fields or like cow manure fields. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a poo-loving mushroom, yes. Uh, <laughs> and they are relatively, I, I think mycology, a lot of mushrooms are relatively easy to grow. Psilocybin mushrooms, I don't have like a personal experience with growing those um, for like legal reasons. But from what I heard here, it's a relatively like with most mushroom growing, it's it's a very easy, relatively easy and affordable thing to do. Um, and I feel like it's really cool to think that like if this is something that people could grow, that you could see just this gr- being something super easily self-sustained, like a community garden of yeah. like psilocybin mushrooms, where it's just this place has like a huge like uh, feet, like a bed, uh, uh, a mushroom bed of uh, psilocybin mushrooms that they grow and they sell like you know, an ounce for like 10 bucks. It's just enough to keep it going. It's a self-replenish. It's not for like a profit. And I think that's really like what I say. That to me is like the ideal versus like just becoming something that gets sold as like psilocybin tablets, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, let's see how it unfolds. And uh, yeah, hopefully that uh, the latter would be the the way that it happens where people have community gardens and, and it'll be, you know, shared and and taken spiritually and uh the world will be a better place yeah um yeah no and uh, there's definitely uh there's there's a place for like pharma there's a place for pharma i think within all of this you know because for example maybe psychedelics uh one animal study just showed that like psychedelics could like improve like asthma symptoms in this in this um in this rat because it's anti-inflammatory and so i think for those kinds of things pharma has a great role like if you can make like a little nasal spray that has like psilocybin in it maybe it's not enough to make you trip but it's enough to help your asthma that's amazing companies should make that companies should sell that but for when it comes to things like for mental well-being i feel like the yeah there has to be there has to be a place for pharma but a place for community to also be able to do it in their own approach it just can't be exclusionary um and it's actually a really good a really good article from the uh or uh i'm probably butchering the pronunciation of the orion or Orion projects. Uh, I sent it to you just now, like on the, uh, the chat here, but it's called Paula P A L A. And it's just a, uh, it's this really amazing story of this, uh, individual getting involved, uh, with like, um, like for profit, like for profit psychedelics and just seeing how like it's taking it out years into the future to kind of make us think like, where is this going? What will this look like? And just making us think critically about, the world that we want to create with psychedelics and the world that uh, the way we want psychedelic standard society. It's a real, uh, it's a real uh, thought provoking article that I think a lot of people would enjoy. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think it's still like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what 
medicinally these things could do. You know, I'm sure like you had mentioned asthma, but yeah, the more they loosen the this the sort of uh, stranglehold on the research and the more people could look into that, I'm sure it's going to explode in just in terms of what what these these things could do in terms of medicines for all sorts of conditions for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I'm definitely excited to see where it, what happens and where it goes. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's uh it's just getting started. Awesome. Uh, Victor, was there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't hit on? I always ask that at the end of the show, just to make sure we covered all the bases before we, we wrap up. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think we covered everything. I think the only thing I would say is, yeah, if you're, um, if you're in a student organization that is, uh, you know, like a psychedelic interest group, like to talk about the research or about like, uh, the, the culture as the psychedelics, whatever it be, if you're a student group that works that, uh, once, if you're a psychedelic student organization or you're starting a psychedelic student organization or we're interested in that, um, we have, uh, I'm one of the co-founders for the Intercollegiate Psych- uh, Psychedelic Network. So that's IPN. Um, it's like 22 schools right now. We're like form, uh, formalizing our framework and are going to like publish like applications to formally uh, be able to invite schools to join. Um, so I don't have a website to share right now, but if you're interested in just hearing more about this and want uh, help with starting a club, or just want to learn more about like what IPN is or submit your school to be a part of this, um, email us like, um, email, email us at, um, pen, uh, pen psychedelics society, uh, at, uh, gmail.com. Uh, and we will like, we will direct you to like the, uh, appropriate resources. We'll like add you to like our chat on Facebook, um, where all the other members are. Um, and yeah, I'm just really, I'm really excited to, to see students across the country and the world really just kind of like finding their place in this, like students are really doing a lot to push this forward and really bring this out. And, uh, people that are, that are not students as well can go to pennpsychedelics.org. and it, do you guys, do you accept like donations for funding or anything like yeah. that? Or yeah. So people could, you know, get involved that way as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you go to like, yeah, our website, um, we have, uh, a we have a link on there as well for like donating to the organization. Um, and yeah, those donations go a long way. It's really helpful for us so that we can like put together the events that we do, which are like always open to the public. Um, it helps us like with maintaining our website and our online presence. Um, yeah. So all that is like extremely, like uh, extremely appreciated for sure. Awesome. Well, Victor, uh, the research that you're doing and the society's doing is super important. So thank you for that. And yeah. thank you for taking the time to talk and, and share some of your knowledge and research with the listeners, because it's definitely really, really interesting. And uh, a lot of people are, uh, are, have a lot of questions about these these medicines that are emerging and um, these psychedelics and, and what they do. And so, you know, thanks for shedding some light on it. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Um, oh, and... <laughs> It's yeah. also a conference that we, there's a conference we were organizing that got postponed due to Corona. Okay. Um, but if anybody will, we'll be sending out announcements about the status of that at some point. Um, but if you want to like, just see what that conference looked like, cause we'll be having it either this upcoming fall or next spring. Um, IPS, Intercollegiate Psychedelic Summit, IPSsummit.org okay. has like the list of speakers we had. It was an awesome conference. And I think a lot of people would enjoy it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. We can definitely include a link to that. Is there a date that that, I'm sorry if you mentioned it, but is there a date that you are going to hold it or you're not sure yet? Wait till the. Not sure. Yeah. We're like just kind of letting things develop for a little bit before we like lock down something again. But, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was amazing uh, to to be here. I really enjoyed talking to you and 
yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me out and having this conversation. Yeah, no, great. No, thank you for doing it. All right. Have a good one. All right. You too. Bye. All right. Peace out, Transmodians.